Father, it's Your Word we open to tonight, and it is Your Word we seek to hear. And Father, in the same vein that that we have been praying, with the things that Les has already shared, and and our, our focus on spiritual warfare tonight, it lands right where we are. It lands right, Father, where I believe our fellowship is. And there is certainly important preparation that You, I believe, would do among us and in us. So I pray You would give us very clear and sharp minds tonight, Father. For those who are weary halfway through the week, maybe after a long day, I pray, Father, for an infusion of Your Spirit and of energy and of clarity of thought. So that as we study, Father, there would not be distraction. I know this is the type of study that the enemy would love to distract from. So, Father, I pray that you would keep us focused. And I pray for a blessing through your word and by your spirit. And we invite you, Lord Jesus, to illuminate our path just a little bit more in Jesus' name. Amen. This is important. Tonight, uh, every week is important, but this is um, this has more edge to it, I believe, and it, to the point that it was a, a tough one for me. Um, just studying through this, I had to come back at it a couple of different times and walk away from it and pray a little bit and try and come back and, and understand what it was the Lord wanted to to say to us and through this. Now, granted, all Bible study, especially when we're in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's history here. There are stories, true stories, literal stories that happened. But we have seen, as we did on Sunday, that so much of this has a further meaning, an application for us, a practicality to it. That we can apply the, the words of the Hebrew Scriptures to our lives, that we see Jesus here, we understand more of His Spirit here, And we've been seeing that in Ezra and Nehemiah, especially where the Holy Spirit is concerned. Ezra the helper, Nehemiah the comforter. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we looked at ten gates. Gates with with great practical meaning on Sunday morning. And I I was excited to share that with you, as excited as as many of you were to hear it. Uh, I was asked a couple of times this week, is this the first time you saw that? Yes, it was. It was new to me. That the sheep gate was a picture of, of Jesus and the fish gate a picture of our, of our testimony once we've come to Jesus. And the old gate a picture of the ancient Word, the Word of God. The valley gate, that picture of struggle and hardship in the Christian life. The refuse or the dung gate, speaking of our confession and getting that junk out of our lives. The fountain gate, our, our vision, our picture of the Holy Spirit, not not just a one-time baptism of the Spirit, but an ongoing, flowing fountain of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You want more of the Spirit, all you have to do is ask. And the water gate, that dynamic of how the the Holy Spirit washes us with, with the water and the Word, that ongoing cleansing and sanctification. And of course, the horse gate, which we pointed out, reminds us of the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus. The east gate, that most obvious gate that Jesus Himself, Messiah, King Messiah, will return through. And finally, the last of the gates, the inspection gate, that reminder of Judgment Day. It is that grand panorama, representative signposts along the journey of our spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. Amazing. Amazing. Ending up, by the way, in verse 32, back at the sheep gate, because you begin and you end with Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He started all things off. He will be there at the end with us as well. But of all the gates that we looked at on Sunday, 
One corresponds to the, to the difficulty that we have in life, and that's the valley gate. And I've thought about the valley gate quite a bit this week, but for many of us, we spend more time at the valley gate than we do just about any other gate. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you recognize when you look back over your life how much time you spend in the valley. How much time we spend dealing with hardship. Now, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist or a realist or any one of the ists, you still have that that sense over time that you've spent some time in the valley. You've spent some time walking there. It was not as easy as you thought it was going to be when first you gave your life to Christ. That doesn't mean it's depressing. doesn't mean it's overwhelming. As a matter of fact... Uh, Paul was the one who wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the way it is. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And James wrote, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Consider it joy, James? Joy when I go through the valley gate? Joy when I'm down in the hardship and the struggle of life? I can consider that joy? How so? Because it's there in the valley that I become more intimately acquainted with the shepherd. That's where I begin to really trust him as less shared. That's where the humility sets in. Where I realize my need for Jesus. That I am not as strong as I, as I thought I was. But that I have a shepherd there who who loves me and walks with me. And so David wrote in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley, the valley, valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That great psalm, you're familiar with it. You've heard it. It's almost a part of... (laughs) Americana, American culture. We, we've heard it so much and it's so embedded in, in, the, in the thinking of so many people. People who don't even really know Jesus as Lord want to hear that psalm at a funeral or at a time of struggle or in the hospital. The valley. The valley is something we all understand. Something we all can relate, relate to at one point or another. And it's interesting to me, the valley is the place of shadows. David refers to the valley of the shadow of death. What is a shadow? The shadow is not the real thing. The shadow is not the actual. It is a dark representation of the real thing. The shadow is the perception of what might be actually going on. Perceived threats. The valley of the shadow of death is walking through that place that is threatening and fearful. That I perceive there's darkness and danger. And I want my shepherd nearby in that place in the valley of the shadows. This is a key tactic of Satan. And we're going to look closely at several tactics of Satan tonight. Again, this is the type of teaching that he would prefer you not hear. So if you're sleepy at all, slap yourself around. Okay? 
If you need to stand up and walk to the back and just take a breath at any point, please, please dial in tonight. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit represented in Nehemiah, whose name means comforter. We are going to see a representation of Satan tonight and how he attacks Nehemiah and the people. The Satan's way of working, his tactics, are in the shadows, the perceived threats. There's a key word for that in our world, something you're very familiar with today, and that's terrorism. Satan is a terrorist. Satan functions like an Osama bin Laden, like an Al-Qaeda. Satan is a terrorist. He would much rather present terror, frighten you, fill you with fear, even than attack, because he knows he really can't get his hands on believers. What he can do is he can whisper, and he can lay out shadows, and he can frighten By the way, there are three aspects, and those three aspects of the nature of man we talked about last week. The body, the spirit, and the soul. Which of these three aspects do you think terrorism is most effective? It's the soul. It's in the soul. Remember, while Ezra portrays the work of the Holy Spirit in our spirits, and Esther, who we'll get to in a bit here, not tonight, portrays the work of the Spirit protecting our physical bodies, Nehemiah gives us insight into the Spirit's work in and around our soul as they build the wall around Jerusalem. Now the temple itself portrays or pictures our spirit, but the wall around Jerusalem is more a picture of the protection of the soul, that place of our our reason, our intellect, our, our will. And that's the place where terrorism has its greatest effect, has its its greatest impact. It was nearly 3,000 people there on 9-11 who were killed in the terror attacks. But the impact of that was far greater in the souls of, of Americans who are frightened and concerned. Can this happen again? Will it happen when I get on the next airplane? It's, it's soul attack at its best. And the Spirit's work is there in and around my soul, building that wall that we talked about last week, the wall around my soul, not to imprison me, but to secure me and to protect, to hem me in behind and before. In Psalm 121, verse 8, we read on Sunday, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We need that wall because, again, it's the soul that struggles most in the valley. Shadows of doubt, distress, discouragement, that can terrorize. And the devil knows this, and, and, and hear me on this, if he can put fear into the soul, he can subdue the spirit, and he can deceive the flesh. Let me say that again. If he can put fear into the soul, he can subdue the spirit, your spirit, and he can deceive your flesh. And as I've looked at these things, I, I, I truly believe the soul is the place of his greatest attack. That's where he targets perceived threats, inserted thought patterns. That's where he goes to work. But what was it that the Lord, David says, the Lord our shepherd does. He restores the soul. The Lord is my shepherd. He he restoreth my soul. Now in Nehemiah, so far with the exception of one negative verbal exchange, things have gone pretty well. He's got the people organized now. All along the wall, everybody's laid out to where they're going to work. From gate to gate to gate, in between all the people and the heads of, of different sections, they all know what their, what their role is, their job is. And by the way, Nehemiah is moving fast. This whole book takes place in a, a span of about nine months. Nine to ten months. 
It's not years. It's not a longer span of time as in the book of Ezra. Nehemiah goes by like this. And already he's back. It took him about three months to get to Jerusalem after leaving uh, Persia, the capital there. And now he's, he's in Jerusalem and the building, total building of the wall will take about two to three months. But he's already got everybody organized, ready to go, and that is when the trouble starts. Daniel 9.25 tells us Jerusalem will be built again. Daniel prophesied this 90 years earlier with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. The Hebrew word for distress there means anguish or oppression. And so Nehemiah, indeed, he builds during days of distress. But the distress we really haven't seen very much yet. We've seen him return. We've seen him have the good hand of the Lord on him. We've seen him prepare the people, get up around the wall. We hit chapter 4, and in verse 1, the distress, the oppression, the anguish begins. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Sanballat goes Sanballistic. He, he loses it. Sanballat, he's the governor of Samaria. What does he have to do with Jerusalem? Nothing really, but he perceives a threat himself. A threat to his power. A threat to things being the way they are. And he doesn't like it and he gets very angry. Construction on the wall is beginning and this guy is livid. It's always what happens when the enemy sees the work of the Spirit get underway. When the devil sees the work of the Spirit begin. Because terrorism tends to be reactionary. And we learned this about Osama bin Laden and and Al-Qaeda, that they were responding. They were responding to America's movement and hands in the Middle East. And that's, that's legitimate. The fact that we supported Israel as a nation. The fact that we were having an impact in any positive way in the Mideast. Well, that angered the terrorists. And so they react. They react and then they hide. And then they react and then they hide. And that is so much the way Satan works. He reacts to what he discovers to be going on. But understand this. I've shared it before. Satan is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He doesn't know what you're thinking right now. He doesn't have that, that all-knowing capability of our Almighty God. Satan has limitations. He doesn't know what God is about to do. He can guess. He's been playing this game for several thousand years, so he's, he's trying very hard to figure out what God's next move is so he can block it or cause problems or, or mess it up. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on often until he sees it. Part of the reason, by the way, Satan can't anticipate the Lord's move is he does not understand love. He doesn't get mercy and grace. He does not understand what that's all about. It's like it's foreign to him, and so he has problems anticipating the move of the Lord. I I believe that though he wants to destroy Israel, he has no idea what God has in store for Israel. He doesn't really understand that God would would want to save such a hard-headed people who had rejected him for so long. And so here comes Satan, this, this reactionary terrorist, By the way, as long as you're doing nothing, there's not much to concern him, so you're probably not going to be bothered too much by him. Which is why Paul said, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hey, if you don't want to live godly in Christ Jesus, just kind of shut up, you know, sit back, don't do anything, and you're not a threat. 
So you probably won't have a whole lot by way of persecution from Satan. But I'll tell you what, if you start to step up, if the Spirit begins to move and you step out in the work of the Spirit in your life, you will become a threat to Him and He's going to go after you. Remember, the work of the Spirit, we talked about this last week, can ignite opposition. And here, Sambalot and his cronies, they're tipped off by the work of Nehemiah, just as Satan gets ticked off by the work of the Holy Spirit. Several things to jot down here tonight. Number one, Sanballat portrays the devil's advocate. Sanballat portrays the devil's advocate. You may recall his name means thorn. Or literally, if you, if you, there are some nuances in his name, it actually means secret thorn. Secret thorny guy. This is Sanballat. That's interesting because Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that, that he had received, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn, a thorn in the flesh. What is that thorn in the flesh, Paul? He calls it a messenger of Satan. Sambalot's name means thorn. He is a messenger of Satan. He portrays the devil's advocate throughout this book. He is a type of Satan as much as Nehemiah is a type of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Comforter. And so this Sambalot is hard at work against the people of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And you might notice here in verse 2 it says, He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Sanballat. Sanballat. A couple things to note about the second verse. The word wealthy here is used. It's probably not the best definition because if you look here, the word that is translated wealthy in verse 2 is most often used in the scriptures for men of valor, host, or army. What we're looking at here is he's gathering around his army, his fighting men, his soldiers. Sambalot gathers them around him, preparing for some, some fighting, at least preparing to be a threat. And then he begins to speak. Second thing to note here, Sambalot plays the demoralization card. <laughs> Sambalot plays the demoralization card. The very first action of this guy is to try to demoralize the workers on the wall. By cutting them down, by putting them down, by laying out impossibilities for them. But as he's doing it, the demoralization begins just by being a threat. He's surrounded by his host, his men of valor. And he's speaking these things out. Just like Satan has a host of hellish henchmen. Sambalot has a gang of goons. A battalion of bullies. And they're at his disposal. And they're all there. And he begins to lay this stuff out to try and demoralize the people. He's mocking the wall. He's mocking the wall. Notice again what he says there in verse 2. He says, What are these feeble Jews doing? You guys are so weak. You're so weak. What are you up to? Are they going to restore for themselves? You think you guys can build this wall? Now, you've got to get a picture of the wall if you possibly can in your mind. This wall was trashed. It was rubble. There's garbage around. It was in heaps. And this wall that went all the way around the city... I recall being a child and sent to my room to clean my room. And it was a disaster. And I didn't know where to start. And that's where we're at with these guys. So they're already standing around going, how are we going to accomplish this? And it says what is probably on the mind of some of these builders. Are you going to restore this? 
Will you ever offer sacrifices again? You're really going to get back to it, he says. Can you finish in a day? Can you revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Notice that every volley from Sanvalet's arsenal is about the unknown future. Now that's important. He's not talking about their past so much. He's not talking about what's happening immediately. He's talking about the, the future. Can you do this? You think you're up to this? You think you can handle what's about to come around the corner? This is a place that Satan loves to attack. In the unknown future. That is a standard soul attack of the enemy. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after that. How do you think you're going to stand against that? And we start to worry and we start to stress about it. And he demoralizes this way. It's interesting if you continue on there. In verse 3 it says, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him. And he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. And he's talking about a light little fox. You know, the, the, the wall that has been, they started to build up. This little animal jumps on it. It's going to fall to pieces. It's terrible workmanship. You guys don't know what you're doing. And I think what's funny about Tobiah here is, if you think about it, he's mocking the wall, but in so doing, he tips the enemy's hand. Well, how does he do that? He's like one of these dumb sidekicks in the movies. You know, that, that speak too much. They, they say what... You, have you seen the movie Home Alone? Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and the two idiot robbers are walking along, and the taller one, you know, is, is saying as they're dragging the kid along, he's telling them everything that they're going to do that night. Stupid, and the one's kicking him, and that's what Tobiah's like. Because he, he tips the enemy's hand here a little bit. You see, the enemy knows something. It's the little foxes that tear up the vineyard. The little foxes. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15. Solomon writes, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyard. You know, you want to know how Satan seeks to undermine the fruit of the Spirit? Here's what he does. He sends in the little foxes. It's rare that Satan comes at us with a full-blown attack. Usually it's nitpicking. A little bit here. A little bit there. It's demonic demoralization. And he builds on it And we need to learn how to recognize this. The enemy says, you're weak, Chip. You're not up to this crack. Look at the size of this job. How will you ever get it done, Chunk? And all of a sudden, we begin to fall apart. And if we think about it, he has been chipping away, sending in the little foxes to chew up the vineyard, to chew up, to mess up the fruit. He speaks to the unknown future with these little discouragements and the next thing we know, fruit's falling off the tree and our faith begins to splinter and crumble like the wall. And that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And His righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Satan is going to throw volleys of attack against tomorrow, your unknown future. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. Why are you stressing about tomorrow? You can't add one day to your life by worry. Don't worry about tomorrow, he says, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Some of the wisest words that Jesus ever spoke. You live now. And by the way, if you live now, guess, guess where you are. You're in the presence of the great I am. Not the I was or the I will be. He is the I am. God is ever present. And our call in a spiritual warfare gang is to fight now. In the now. 
It's the immediate perspective of the work of the Spirit. So we don't get bogged down with the unknown future of, of Sambalot and Tobiah. They're throwing these things out. Someone might say, well, well, Rick, you're always talking about the future when you talk about Jesus coming. You're right, I do. That's not the unknown future. That is the known future. We know He's coming. We know how it's going to look. The only thing we don't know is when it is, but we don't have to know that. We know because Jesus said, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 24.30 That is the known future, and I will continue to proclaim that. Verse 4 going on. Verse 4 the people respond. They begin to pray. They say, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Now, note that they do not respond to Sambalot or Tobiah. They don't get in an argument. They don't fight back. This is something that's wise in spiritual warfare, that you don't go head-to-head with Satan. In the book of Jude, we're told that even the archangel Michael did not pronounce a railing judgment against Satan, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And left it to the Lord. So the people, they don't turn to the enemy. They turn to the Lord. They say, Here, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity. Let let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. So, Nehemiah writes, we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Number three in your notes here. The people, they perceived the disdain of the enemy. They perceive the disdain of the enemy. What do you mean? They understand They understand where the target is, and it's not on them. Whose work is being accomplished as they begin to build this wall? Nehemiah's? Ezra's? This is the work of the Lord. And we need to recognize this as well. It was God's work these terrorists were threatening. It was God's work Sambalot was coming up against. God's work Tobiah was trying to cut down. God's work the host of henchmen were standing around mocking. It was the work of the Lord. The reality on the ground was this. The ridicule of Sambalot was not against the people. It was against their God. Jesus says in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you, When people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Why? Because you're not the issue. Jesus is. And when the enemy comes against you, it's not because you're all that important. It's because you're standing for Jesus. It's because you're engaged in the work of the Holy Spirit. This perspective is incredibly important for us. It is His kingdom. It is His project. It's His work. And so, when the enemy attacks you on account of your Christian witness, or or attacks you because of a moral stance, or goes after you because of your simple relationship with Jesus, remember this, gang. John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. They hated me first. And Jesus would say, and it's a great encouragement, the only reason why you would take any persecution or flack is because they hated me. And you work for me. And that's a great perspective and understanding. So, the next thing that happens here is Sambalot and company plan a devilish attack. Verse 7, they plan a devilish attack. Now, when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. 
What do terrorists do? They cause a disturbance. They try and inject fear into a society or a people, and then they withdraw. Look at the change in our country in the last eight years. The change in our lifestyle, even here on North Whidbey Island and in Anacortes and in Oak Harbor, look at the change in our lifestyle because of what they did. They caused a disturbance. And so our airports are completely different. Our travel is completely impacted. The things we do that we're starting to just get used to. But it was all changed because the terrorist comes in and stirs things up and pulls back. Now note this, Sambalot and Tobiah are joined here by the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. It's kind of a council of united nations here. And they're determined to destroy Israel which isn't far off of the mark today. The United Nations seem to be determined (laughs) to destroy Israel. Speaking of the UN, did you hear about the Goldstone Report? Did I share that in here? The Goldstone Report? I don't know that I did. It was compiled recently by a clearly biased committee of four people who all ahead of time had spoken against Israel and it was a report, they were commissioned to look at the, the uh, Operation Cast Lead, Israel's incursion into Gaza uh, last summer, when they went in to stop all the, the what was it, 4,000 rockets that had been fired out of Gaza into civilian towns there in Israel. 8, so they 8,000? 8, okay, let's be clear, it's 8,000 rockets. Wow, it's more than I thought. And so they go in to fight this. Well, the Goldstone Report... These people got together and they did their investigation and what they came back with was that they are submitting to the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is itself a contradiction in terms. They want this council now to proclaim Israel committed war crimes against humanity in the international court. That's the Goldstone Report. And by the way, in the UN Human Rights Council, the UNHRC, over the last three years, Israel has been castigated, called up, put down six times in three years. No country is picked on like they are. It's incredible. I wanted to share something with you just quickly here. This is from Arut Sheba, uh, which is a news source there out of Israel. British Colonel, IDF safeguarded civilian lives in Gaza. The United Nations Human Rights Council voted Friday to endorse the Goldstone Report, this is October the 18th, that accused Israel of committing war crimes in Gaza. But at least one British Army officer fought hard to set the record straight. Commander Richard Kemp told the UNHRC that the IDF made a strong effort last winter to safeguard the lives of Gaza's civilians during its counter-terrorist operation. He said, and I quote, During Operation Cast Lead, the Israeli Defense Forces did more to safeguard the rights of civilians in a combat zone than any other army in the history of warfare. Israel did so while facing an enemy that deliberately positioned its military capability behind the human shield of their own civilian population. Amazing. He said Hamas, like Hezbollah, are expert at driving the media agenda. Both will always have people ready to give interviews condemning Israeli wars, forces for their war crimes. They are adept at staging and distorting incidents. Interesting. We see this continuing today. What, what was even going on back here? We have Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, and they're all gathering together, and they're going against Israel. And we've said this before. Why are they going against Israel? Because Satan has it in for Israel. Satan always has. 
He does not want God's people to survive. And so he continues to go after them. This is the stuff of satanic enmity, what Ezekiel called, and I believe Ezekiel 35, an everlasting enmity. It's been there forever. The Arabs, gang, are cousins of the Jews. They are all Semitic people coming from the line of Shem. Semitic people, the Jews and the Arabs. Arabs coming out of the line. When you look at Jacob and Esau, Jacob is Israel. Esau provided for the Arabic population. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, obviously, his son was Jacob, so that's the line of Israel. Ishmael. The Ishmaelites were part of what we see in the Arab world today. And so the Arabs have it in and always have for Israel. Well, Rick, you're sounding awfully one-sided. I understand that, and my t-shirt may be giving a bit away as well. But the point is this. Jews and Arabs alike will find their salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And that salvation is open to any who will receive it and accept it. There are Christian Arabs, gang. There are Christian Palestinians, brothers and sisters in Christ of ours. But the reality is we see these ongoing smear campaigns and terror tactics designed to discourage the people of Israel. It was happening in Nehemiah's day. It is happening in our own day as well. But they conspired to come and fight against Jerusalem. Verse 9 tells us, But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Love this verse. There's great wisdom in this for us. They didn't just pray. They prayed and. Note that. Be aware of this. The people pray with determination to keep watch. That's number 5 if you're tracking these things in our list. The people pray with determination to keep watch. Pray and watch. Watch and pray. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said in Matthew 26.41, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They were in the garden, and He went on further to pray, and that's what He said to the apostles. Watch and pray. Pray with me, guys, but keep watch. Why? They, They didn't understand. Why should we have to keep watch? Well, Jesus knew the enemy was on the way. He knew even at the moment he said that, that that Judas and the Roman battalion were coming to get him. Keep watch and pray. Pray and keep watch. But it's not the only time that Jesus said watch and pray. Luke 21, verse 36. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I truly believe this should characterize us as believers. Watching and praying. Praying and watching. How do we do that? I understand the prayer part. How do we become watchful today? Can you give me a practical example? Well, let me ask you this. When you watch the news or read the paper, are you watching? Are you paying attention to things from a spiritual perspective that are going on in the world around us? When you see our world moving further from the truth, are you praying? Did you pay attention to the elections yesterday? Not from a Democrat or an Independent or Republican perspective. Did you pay attention to the elections yesterday from a spiritual perspective? Did you know in the state of Maine that the people of Maine voted down gay marriage? Hallelujah. They are the 31st state to do it. Are you keeping watch on what's happening? But I'll tell you what, the gay agenda continues to come up against marriage. But Maine voted it down. However, 
in the state of Washington, the uh, initiative R71, which is called the Everything But Marriage Initiative, was upheld, giving homosexuals full and equal, equal rights with married couples in our state. The only thing it doesn't give them is the title of marriage, but they have full and equal rights in the government now. So your tax dollars here in Washington state will go to pay and provide for homosexual couples to have the same benefits as a married couple. Are you watching? Are you praying? We are called to be a people who pray and watch. Now the next several verses tell us exactly how this played out. Verse 9 is almost a, it's, it's a description, a single verse description of what happens in the next three. In Judah it was said, verse 10, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the walls. The, the people were discouraged already. And our enemies said, verse 11, they will not know or see until we come among them. Kill them and put a stop to the work. Here's the threat. Here's the shadow. The perceived threat. They're not going to know. We're going to come among them. We're going to be stealthy and we're going to take them out. Well, that word is trickling into Jerusalem. The people are already discouraged. Now there's a threat. They're going to be killed. And they're not going to know when it's going to happen. Verse 12. When the Jews who lived near... Now, this is they're not in Jerusalem. These are the Jews living in Judea surrounding Jerusalem. When they came, they came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. In verse 13, Well, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. Sambalot and his UN are plotting. And Nehemiah and the Jerusalemites are building, and the people of Judah Judah are all warning. In fact, number six in our list here, the naysayers persist in discouragement. This is interesting. The ones who are adding the most discouragement here to the fire, those in verse 12, they come ten times. They'll come up against us from every place where you may turn. They're worried. They're persisting in discouragement. Do you ever notice that when you're in the valley? You ever notice when you're in the valley, the very people you hope will stand by you and encourage you oftentimes are the greatest source of discouragement. Now we'll see this in the book of Job when we get there. Show Zophar and, and Bildad and, and um, I forget the other guy's name, three friends, so-called friends of Job. And when Job is at his worst, sitting in a pile of ashes, woe is him, his world is falling apart. They're coming and they begin to lecture him. And they don't help him at all. His wife won't be any encouragement. She's the one who says, curse God and die. Well, thanks a lot, woman. That was a lot of help, you know. It's interesting that when you get into the valley, that's where you begin to see, and the friends and brothers and sisters around you, you see those who are truly walking in the Spirit. Because if they're walking in the Spirit, they're not going to come and be naysayers. They're not going to add fear, pile fear upon fear. They're going to comfort and encourage. That's what we're called to. I'm pointing this out, gang, because every church has them. People who sit on the sidelines until things get challenging, until things get hard, and then they're the first ones out to gripe and complain and dump pessimism. Don't be that way. Don't you be among them. We are called spirit-filled people to be comforters and encouragers, not naysayers and pessimists. Man, the way is going to look hard. We talked about this in our elders meeting last night. The way is going to look hard. And it's wonderful to stand up here and say, by faith we build. 
We're going to do this in faith. We're going to trust the Lord to provide financially, to provide you know, materials, to provide whatever's needed. We're really going to trust Him for that. That's easy to say. It's wonderful. It's exciting. We all go out to lunch on a Sunday afternoon and go, isn't it great that we're such a faithful church? No, we're not. We've declared faith. We are about to walk in faith. And it gets hard. Interesting, last night I pointed out some verses straight out of this at our, at our shepherds meeting and we are just talking a little bit about the need to be more vigilant where spiritual warfare is concerned. I'm pointing these things out. Les had already shared a verse and a comment not knowing I was going to point them out about the exact same thing and then I come along and go, well, that's what I was going to talk about. And then Russ said, you know, that's interesting. I got a text from Kathy as I was heading over here tonight and he read it to us. And in essence, and I don't remember the exact quote, but, but Kathy had told Russ, I, I just really feel like you guys need to be praying because I think, I, I just have a sense that we're going to be coming under more attack. So we had some confirmation immediately that we're right on track. As a fellowship, I don't say this to scare anybody, but it's when the work begins that the enemy starts to get angry. It's when we step out. Man, if we stay hidden and tucked away in this safe, happy little barn, we're no threat. We get out of here and we start to have impact for the kingdom. He's going to come after us. And He's going to do it. Oftentimes in church, He goes first after pastors and shepherds. Leaders. He goes after the body from within. He tries to to develop schisms and division. Last night we prayed for unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's what we need to be praying for in this body. But these naysayers in Nehemiah's day, they are persisting in discouragement. And yet Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Verse 14, Well, when I saw their fear, I arose. I spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them, Nehemiah speaks. And I love this. He says, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Man, circle that in your Bibles. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. What does Nehemiah do? Well, number seven in our list, I think we're at number seven, the comforter points in the direction of Jesus. We already saw this before. This is what the Comforter does. He points in the direction of Jesus. If the way gets tough, he points right back to Jesus. If our faith begins to fail, he points to Jesus. If we start to get fearful, he points to Jesus. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will not speak of himself. He will glorify me. John 16, 13 and 14. Jesus says, the Spirit will tell you, remember the Lord and fight. Remember the Lord. When I'm struggling in my soul... When my sense of reason is simply unreasonable, the Comforter says, remember Jesus. Hebrews 12.3, a verse we should all have in our arsenal. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. By the way, note this, you're not just fighting for you. Your faith is not just about you. We've got to be reminded of this. What does Nehemiah say? Fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, for your houses. Your stand of faith is not just about you. It's about all those around you. Even in this fellowship, if we come up against hard times and challenges in the next months and years, Lord willing, however long we have, our stand of faith will encourage those around us. 
are faltering in faith will discourage those around us. And so stand. Remember the Lord and fight. Verse 15, I love this. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. God frustrated their plan. Psalm 33, 11, or 10 and 11, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. When the United Nations, and I know I've bashed on the United Nations a bit tonight, they're, they're honestly easy to bash on, but when the United Nations does something that is foolish, when the United Nations gathers together, and, and in the end, gang, we know the nations of the world are going to come up against Jesus Christ. When you see things happening like that, when the vote doesn't go the way you hoped it would, when those in leadership in the world and the nations do stupid things, remember this verse, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. So there may be stupid things. That come, you know, the agents, UN, HRC may come out and say, we're going to have to do something about this Israel. We're going to have to shut them down. We're going to have to get them out of here. This is just problematic. They, they've committed war crimes. We'll understand whatever happens that the Lord's counsel will not fail. He nullifies the counsel of the nations. Terrorists, man, they tend to run from a real fight. They back away when they see the people of God gearing up. James said this, James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's some powerful spiritual warfare uh, right there. How do I fight the devil? Resist him. Devil, you have no place here. You have no business here among these people. These are the people of Jesus Christ. The best way to stand and resist is to watch and pray. And to continue to proclaim Jesus, and He will flee from you. Nehemiah is developing a whole new mentality among the exiles. It's interesting, Ezra went back and sought to restore and encourage the people. Fifteen years later, here comes Nehemiah. And there's still a sense of fearfulness among the people. Until Nehemiah says, remember the Lord and fight. Let's stand up. Let's make a difference. Watch this. He he begins to develop... These fighting workmen, the fighting faithful. Verse 16, From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears, shields, bows, and breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. I like that. As for the builders, each wore his sword, girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. The sword, I don't need to tell you what that's a picture of. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. The activity of the Spirit. The Word that that divides. That gives us discernment and understanding. Right there. Girded at our side. I said, verse 19, to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. That is a man of faith. Great words of faith. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from the dawn until the stars appeared. At that time I also said to the people, Let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by day and a, or by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me, none of us removed our clothes 
Each took his weapon even to the water. They stayed armored up. They had the full armor, as Paul said of God. They never took it off. They didn't take the sword off to sleep. They would rest against the wall, sword right there in the hill, ready to go at a moment's notice. That's called watchfulness. Watch and pray. Pray and watch. We read this and you might say, you know, that's great for Nehemiah. That's, that's wonderful. Nice Bible study. I mean, they actually get to see the Lord at work. I mean, this is Bible stuff, right? God's there among them doing great things, but where's God in my valley? I mean, it's different today. We don't see God the way Nehemiah saw God. We don't hear God the way Nehemiah heard from the Lord. You know what's interesting? Read through it. In the book of Nehemiah, you will not a single time hear the Lord speak one word. We don't hear from the Lord. You're not going to see the Lord do anything other than what Nehemiah says He did. Nehemiah testifies to the work of the Lord. Nehemiah testifies to the activity of the Lord. But it's all pretty much in this book one-sided. It's Nehemiah praying. It's the people praying. It's them acting out what they know the will of the Lord to be. But you don't hear from God in this book. Not a single time. Nehemiah's day was not much different than ours. Or are you saying that he didn't hear from the Lord? No, I'm not. He did. I believe absolutely. He knew what he was to do. He was called to do it. But we don't see that we don't see the parting of the Red Sea in the day of Nehemiah, do we? We don't see the fire standing between Nehemiah and the people and Sambalot and his people. We don't see the big miracles. We see a people faithful and at work, prayerful, watching, trusting the Lord. This is so applicable to right where we are. Now I don't doubt in the least again that God was here. Nehemiah, God was at work here. Nehemiah certainly didn't. But we're just not very different than he is. What Nehemiah had is what we have. Our greatest tool gain is our faith. Our faith, our trust in the Lord. In Nehemiah's faith, he shows us the most simple way to stand against terrorism. Be watchful, be prayerful, and you might add a third to that, be earful. Be earful. Be earful. In other words, listen up. What am I listening for? Listen for what? Listen for the sound of the trumpet. Note that in verse 20. At the place, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. And when the trumpet sound is heard, gang, we're going to rally to Jesus. So while we're watchful and while we're prayerful, we're also earful. We are listening for the call of Jesus. Ready to go at a moment's notice, but in the meantime, keeping watch and keeping at prayer. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Are you among those who loves His appearing? I, I was told Sunday, we were talking you know, through the gates, and we got to the horse gate, and I got a little excited. We got to the east gate, and I got more excited. You know, I'm talking about that, and I'm wrapped up in it, and we're going back to Revelation 19, and, and Aaron Shalesky came up to me afterwards, and he goes, you know, that, that teaching was old school Rick. 
Old school Rick? What, what are you talking about? Old school What, am I been boring lately? What, what are you talking about here? And there's a, no, no, it was just you got excited about, I mean, you haven't talked about Revelation in a while, and you, you got excited about the end, and it's just old school Rick. And I thought, wow. Because every time I think about the coming of Jesus, I get amped up. Do you love His appearing? Are you excited for that? It's coming. He's coming. Alright, let's skip chapter 5. Go to chapter 6. We're going to come back to chapter 5. We're going to teach through it on Sunday. Okay? Chapter 5 is a little different because now we have some problem from within. Uh, the Jews having problems with other Jews. And we're going to deal with that on Sunday. But I want to stay in the flow of this Sanballat issue and these guys coming against Israel. So let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let's meet together at Hepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Then they sent messengers to me four times in this matter and I answered them in the same way. Days pass here. Not months, not even weeks probably, but but days, a sufficient number of days pass and the wall is just about finished. All they need to do now is hang the doors. But the enemy has not given up. The enemy was a bit discouraged when Nehemiah and the people geared up and were ready for them, so they backed off. But they're still wanting to come after him. Even after his epic failure in the wilderness battle against Jesus, Satan, we're told, that when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. Luke 4.13 Spiritual warfare, gang. He may let up on you, but he has not let up. He will look for another opportunity, another time when he can come back at you. Don't ever think you're off the hook where the enemy is concerned. And here in, in this beginning of chapter 6, these three guys now are coming after Nehemiah. And note this, chapter 6 isn't Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, these other people going after the people of Judah. They're going after Nehemiah specifically. They are targeting the leader. And Satan will do this. We're going to notice here a three-pronged attack against Nehemiah himself. The first thing they do is they send these letters to try and get him off down there, down to meet with them at the plain of Ono, which the, the name itself should give some warning, you know. Should I go down to the plain? Oh no, don't go. Down to the plain. They're trying to break up Nehemiah's band in the plain of Ono. Kind of like Yoko did. You know? Ono broke up the band. Well, that's what they're trying to do. Three things to note here in this chapter. The terrorists play up political aspirations. They say, hey, come meet with us. Come on, we just want to talk. Obviously, we've got some differences of opinion. Yeah, you guys said you were going to come kill us. (laughs) Well, we just want to talk. We just want a little diplomacy here. It's like Iran's nuclear dance. We're watching Iran, and all they're doing is buying time. I mean, doesn't everybody see this? I want to go knock on the door of the White House. Look, let me just tell you what's going on. Because we all see it out here in the country. We're all very aware of what Iran is doing. They're just buying time. That's all that diplomacy is to them, is it's time. 
And these guys are playing politics. Let's talk about it. But the reality is they were planning treachery against Nehemiah. Understand this, diplomacy never works with the devil. Diplomacy never works with the devil. Jesus says in John 8.44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why would you deal with someone who only lies? Don't ever make a deal with the devil. Well, you might say, well, I would never make a deal with the devil. What are you even talking about, Rick? Why would any Christian make a deal with the devil? Listen to me. Every act of moral compromise, every biblical dilution that we see in the church today and among professed believers is nothing short of the devil's diplomacy. I mean, this is serious business. Someone would stand up and say, I wouldn't deal with the devil, and yet we say, but... We really need to make place in the church for all kinds of lifestyles. It's the devil's diplomacy. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 6 says, You've abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they're filled with influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Anytime we as Christians try to make a deal with the world, Try to soften up the truth. Try to make it just a little more palatable. Instead of allowing the truth to be what it is, we are playing the devil's diplomacy. Nehemiah doesn't fall for it. Is it because he's discerning? I mean, obviously he says, but they were planning to harm me. You know, I'm not sure Nehemiah knew that at the time. Oh, certainly when he looks back and he's writing this, he says, hey, I realized they were planning to harm me by getting me down to that, to that plane of, oh no. <laughs> But I wonder if he really knew at the time the terrorists were planning to do him harm or did he just insert it later? Why would you say this? Because the reason Nehemiah gives for not playing politics is not fear or planned attacks. It's something else. Look at verse 3. I sent messengers saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. He's not just trying to avoid going to meet with them. His eye is on the prize. His hand is to the work of the Lord. He is seeking first the kingdom. And he is focused on the work. And by the way, it is a great work. And he is so intent on doing the work of the Lord, he doesn't have time to mess with the enemy. So he doesn't go. And that's a prescription for a spiritual life game when we try to play the political game or soft-pedal the truth to meet in the middle ground of the plane of, oh no, the work stops. And Nehemiah said, I can't stop the work right now. I'm sorry. I'm not going to waste time getting into a ridiculous argument about things that mean nothing when I've got the work of the Lord to do. The Holy Spirit is doing a great work in you. Please hear that. The Holy Spirit is doing a great work in you right now. He is at work in each one of us. He's doing things we don't even see. Preparing us, strengthening us, building up our faith. Man, stay focused on that work. The work of the Lord. Jesus said, John 6.27, Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. What is the seal of God? What's the seal of God in your life? The Holy Spirit is. He has given us His Spirit as a seal. 
It's a pledge. And Jesus says, don't work for the food which perishes, but the food that endures by the seal of the Spirit. There is work to which we have been called, gang, and it is not the devil's diplomacy. Second thing that goes on. So they try and do this diplomatically, politically, draw him out. Secondly, the terrorists proceed with phony accusations. Verse 5. Then Sambalot sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. This is for everybody to see, you know, declaring it through the streets as he comes in. And in it was written, It is reported among the nations that Gashmu, that's the same uh, Geshem, the, the Arab that we've seen before, it was reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. You won't meet with us? All right. We're going to make it hard for you. We're going to go back and tell the king of Persia that you're stirring up rebellion. We're going to lie. They're making stuff up. It's all fake. It's all phony. It's illegitimate stuff. But gang, note this. They are twisting actual prophecies being spoken at the time. He says, there are prophets that you've appointed in Jerusalem saying that you're to be the king. They're twisting what's really going on. Not prophecies about the rule of of Nehemiah, so-called, but there were prophecies going on about the coming rule of Jesus. You see, Malachi was there. Malachi the prophet. And he is speaking. Prophesying there in Nehemiah's day, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So these prophecies were being spoken there in Jerusalem. And Sambalat says, Oh, oh, they're being spoken. You're, you're stirring this up. You're the one doing this. It's all about you, Nehemiah. You're stirring up rebellion. Sambala is saying, this is heady stuff, Nehemiah. You're functioning out of nothing but arrogance and rebellion. I was thinking about this today. You know that was said about me when we started the bridge? In fact, and I can share this with you now, it was one of the most hurtful things that was said about me when we started the bridge. You are arrogant. That's why you're doing this. That knocked me off my feet. I I had to spend a week or two with the Lord saying, Am I? Is that why we're doing this? Am I meeting in this living room over here because I'm an arrogant jerk? Because I think I'm greater? Because I think I've got something to offer, something to give? Inserted thought patterns of the enemy. This is what he does. The little foxes. Send a little thought in there. You're arrogant. You're rebellious. And we're going to give this message back to the king. And that kind of thing can send you reeling if your eye is not on Jesus. And if your hand is not to the work. Verse 8, Well, then I send a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. (laughs) You're making this stuff up, he says. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But oh, now, oh God, strengthen my hands. I want you to note this in verse 9 when he says they will become discouraged. That word discouraged means they will become feeble-handed, weak-handed. So there's a play on words going on. Nehemiah says, 
They will become weak-handed with the work, but now God, strengthen my hands. Make my hands strong to maintain the work. First, there are political aspirations. Then there's phony accusations. None of these devilish designs worked. Watch what they try to do next. Verse 10. And when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, of the, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, and that word confined is not confined like he was sick, it's he was cloistered. He was like a monk almost, cloistered at home. He said, let's meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let's close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you at night. Let's hide out in the temple, man. <laughs> but I said... Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Smart guy, Nehemiah. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin. Note that. And sin? How would it be sin just for him to hide out? so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. He says, Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalot, according to, this, to these works of theirs, also no idea the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Number three, third thing they're doing, the terrorists plot a prophetic isolation. What do you mean? They're trying to get Nehemiah isolated, off by himself, where they can stick him. Get him alone. Get him over there inside the temple even. We can get him there. Or if he goes in the temple, we've got something on him. What do you mean? Nehemiah knew he could not go into the temple. Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah understood that to go into the temple was a violation of the law. Remember King Uzziah? Who went into the temple? Spent the rest of his life in leprosy? Nehemiah could not enter the temple and hide out. They were baiting him to isolate him and get him off by himself. Okay? This is one of the most underhanded things the devil will do in spiritual warfare. He will isolate you. If he can get you off by yourself, if he can get you away from other believers, away from encouragement, away from the Word, get you alone. And if He can keep you in a season of loneliness where your own soul begins to work against you, where He can begin to whisper things. Teenagers, if He can get you away, alone, maybe with that person you're dating. Danger. Worry. I'm not just saying that for you, Hannah. I'm making a point here. Isolation is one of the most underhanded and devilish schemes that Satan will use. It's in that place of isolation we get so easily discouraged. How do we avoid this? How do we keep from being isolated by the enemy? The enemy who wants alone time with you. (laughs) He, He truly does. Here's how you do it. You walk in the light of fellowship with other believers. You walk in the light of fellowship. Isaiah 2.5, Come, house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. Ephesians 5.8, You once were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How do children of light walk? Openly, honestly with each other. We talked about this last night in our elders' meeting. We looked at each other and said, You know, guys, we have to be open and honest with each other here. 
We cannot hide things. We cannot allow ourselves to be ever to be divided. And we're not a divided group. We're a very close group. There's a lot of love and support and encouragement there. I'm not a closed group, by the way, if you don't don't think that we're cronies, you know, over here doing this. That's not my point at all. But we have to keep eyes wide open and we have to be open and honest about what's going on. I told the guys last night, listen, if you hear something going on that's negative, bring it. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's walk in the light as He is in the light. And we'll have fellowship with one another, 1 John 1, seven. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's how you battle isolation of the enemy. You walk in the light. You keep everything wide open and you stand with your brothers and sisters. And here we come down to the end here. Where are we now? Verse 15. The wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in, watch this, 52 days. It took about two months to complete the wall. Granted, they stopped on Sabbath days. So maybe a little, maybe about three months total. Working on the wall. When all our enemies heard of it, I love this, when all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. Ha <laughs> ha! For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. They lost their confidence. Paul said, for I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The work got done. It didn't take long. And the enemies, now they're the ones, they tried to be the discouragers, now they're discouraged. And that's always how it works. When you accomplish the great things the Lord has called us to accomplish, the enemy gets discouraged. It bums him out. That's what I want. I want to see Satan bummed. I want to see Satan just going, oh, I tried so hard against that British Christian fellowship, but it didn't work, man. That'd be great. Listen to him moan and whine and complain for a while. And not let it happen the other way around. If you want, if I want to silence the critics who doubt that the Lord is leading, don't compromise, don't cower, don't hide. Just stay to the work. Keep to the work. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Be listening. And let's keep about the business God has called us to. It ends interestingly, in fact, with a, with a little bit of a twist here. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. That was an Israelite who was working on the wall gang. And his son, Yohanan, or Yohanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. What's going on here? The story ends with a twist. Tobiah is connected. He has worked his way inside there of the family of Israel. He has shrewdly designed a reputation. He has been standing with Sambalot, Satan's messenger, the thorny one. He all this while has been coming against. Well, now suddenly when it failed, when it didn't work, well, now Tobiah is standing up and he's getting all of his cronies, the people that he has you know, ingratiated himself with, and he's getting them to send letters and talk to Nehemiah and say, oh, Tobiah is a good guy. I mean, even his name, Tobiah. Yah is good. Yahweh is good. That's what Tobiah means. Yahweh is good. By the way, note that anytime you see Yah on a Hebrew name, it has to do with Yahweh. Yahweh's good. Something about this Tobiah. Gotta keep watch for. 
Now keep an eye out, because unlike Sambalot, that picture of the devil, this guy is in good with the sheep. This is the wolf in sheep's clothing. Sambalot was obvious. He just came head to head. Tobiah is much more subversive. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing who will have to be dealt with, but not tonight. Let's stop and pray. Father, we continue on. In fact, we just unhook for a, for a time, a season. But having gone through and, and seen the attacks and the underhanded ways that this sandbalot, this thorn, tried to take apart the wall, tried to discourage the people, Lord, we see Satan in this. And it is so obvious. And it is so clear how he tries to isolate us. How he tries to cause us to sin unwittingly. How he pulls us away. Lord, how he threatens and and how he works in the shadows of the valley. But we proclaim, we declare tonight, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself, we will fear no evil. For you are with us. Your rod, your staff, they comfort us. Lord, we recognize as David wrote, you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Oh, Father, what do we have to worry about? Father, I pray if there's any among our fellowship who are discouraged, if any whose soul is feeling torn down, would you restore and build up. Make us wise and discerning, eyes wide open. Father, may we be watchful and prayerful and ever listening for your call home. Spirit, breathe into this fellowship and have your way with us as the work gets done. We pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.